Boker Tov. Welcome to our Friday morning Torah study. We're hoping there are folks joining us uh, on the podcast as well as we study this week's Torah portion, uh, Mitzorah, from the book of Leviticus. Um, I've told you many times that I stay within the triennial reading so that I can stay honest um, about (laughs) confronting texts that are not necessarily the favorite ones um, in the world to study. This week is probably the paradigm, right, uh, of that model of keeping myself honest, because if there's one text I could avoid ever studying, uh, it would be this one. Um, where we're starting uh, Mitzorah. Tazria and Mitzorah are read together. Um, so I'm going to talk about them a little bit before we look at the text itself. Um, Tazria and Mitzorah are a double portion. So they're read together unless and until, um, unless and until there's a uh, leap month added to the Jewish calendar, in which case they are separated. Um, because we add four Shabbatot. When we add Adar, a second Adar, we add four Sabbaths during which we need to, to read. So the rest of the year, Tazri and Matora come together. And, uh, the, and so this year we're reading uh, Mitzorah as the third year cycle triennial reading. Let's say a bracha for our study. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Blessed are you, God, spirit of the universe, who makes us holy with your commandments and commands that we engage with words of Torah. So, do I have a, I don't have a blackboard. Um, or a whiteboard, even. Um, so, if we take a minute to think about where these texts originate, if we take a minute to think about the system in which they originate, it is the system that is very much concerned with purity. It is very much concerned with holiness as a spatial, physical issue, literally. It is spatial in that once sin happens, the space is contaminated by that sin. And sin, the the energy, the dross of sin is drawn to the sancta. So the important thing in the Israelite system, in the ancient Near Eastern mindset, was to continually cleanse the sanctified area and the Israelite camp of tum'ah, of impurity, both from sin and from just things that happen. So if, we, if we've defined, which we have together, if we've defined impurity as essentially a state of spiritual otherness, non-normalcy. What, what we don't realize in the Western world, it, it now, in the contemporary Western world, um, is that for the ancients, that was a force that was communicable. Contagious. Hmm? It was contagious. It was contagious, yes. So for them, if you're in a state of otherness for some reason, you, you need to honor that state and not bring it into the place of the norm because it contaminates the normal space with tum'ah, with otherness. So if, if we want to read, as some anthropologists do, 
the priestly system of tum'ah, of impurity, as somehow being connected to death, right? That the, the life force, life is holy, right? That is the life, you know, life for us is always holy. All life is holy. What is the antithesis of that? Is death. And so contact with death is otherizing, is, is somehow unlifing. So you don't want to bring that into the life of the community, right? It needs to be honored as something other, not bad, right? Otherness caused from natural, normal contact with those things that might be impure is not necessarily bad. It doesn't belong in the state of Kedusha, of holiness, and it doesn't belong in the normal life of the community. <clears throat> there are some kinds of tum'ah which carry an implication that we might call negative, which is sin causes contamination that repels holiness. It repels the force of Kedusha. The danger with that is that, hmm? Oh, yeah, thank you. Is it God? Thank you, Carol. God is all Kedusha. God is only holiness. So much. So when we're looking at the Torah text, what we're doing is in the imagination of the Israelites who are living in a temple priestly system. They are living a cultic system in the time of the temple. But, but they're imagining a time in the desert where you have the tabernacle, right? You've got the Holy of Holies. You've got the altar. And you've got lots of other stuff that goes along with this as part of the sancta. You have then the Israelites camped all around the tabernacle, right? Tribes all the way out. So when an Israelite sins against another Israelite, there's a charge that's released that is drawn to the sancta. This is happening all the time. All the time. So what is the way that this is dealt with? You get the life force. What's the life force? Blood. Blood. Blood is used to cleanse this space of all of that contamination. That is the point of sacrifice. That's the point. <coughs> now, there are normal, natural things that happen that also have to do with death in life. Give me some examples. Birth. Birth. Why does birth have something to do with death? Because it initiates the process. It initiates what process? Death. It initiates the process of a living being coming into the world which will someday die. die. <clears throat> and what about the mother? She's unclean, so that we're going to go there. But wh what is the death business with mother in birth? Well, in biblical times, many women were dying. You'd better believe it. Mother is walking the line between the living and the dead because of the risk of death. What happened to infants in the ancient world? They died. They died. You had a 
50-50 shot of making it to the age of five. Right? So both mother and baby are dealing with the very, very real possibility of dying in the ancient world. And there's some who want to say the reason the tum'ah, the, the period of um, impurity that is caused by this contact with the death reality, that it's longer for a woman giving birth to a girl because she's going to have a girl who's also going to go through these exact risks. Yes? A boy won't. What All right. about the menstrual cycle? The menstrual cycle. Any guesses? Blood. Well, blood, death. What's the connection to death and blood and menstruation? The passing of an egg. Well, did yeah. they know? Yeah. But did they know? Yeah. That it was, there was no pregnancy. That's what they knew. Oh. There should have been, but there wasn't. Mm. So there was the death of a possible life. Potential. Of a potential life. So was that the... The concept behind the red tent, <coughs> they were separated from the community? Yes. Yes. Ooh. So we're going there. So. And yet they. Birth? They used blood to cleanse the um, sancta area. But in the case of a woman bleeding, it's seen totally differently. This is not lost. <laughs> on lots of folk, particularly feminist scholars, who want to say, now wait just a second. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If blood is a purification right. agent, right. very convenient though that you know <laughs> a woman's menstrual cycle is a contaminant. Yeah. How does that work? So one could argue that it, it is which blood? We don't use human blood, God forbid, mm -hmm. for this ritual. We use animal blood that there is a difference between blood as ritual detergent and blood that is evidence of a lost potential life. Those are different. Would be, would be, the, would be this argument. And I'm not, I'm not trying to sell you on this argument. I'm trying to say this is one way people have tried to understand the ancient mind, right? the ancient understanding of the world. And it makes to me some sense. If death is the antithetical force to life, and was one of the major issues for them, right? We, we, we don't deal with it. They lived a life a lot closer to the possibilities you know, of death. Then I think it's something to think about. Like it's just a way for us to, to even get our heads around a system like this without going, ew, to just try to understand where they're coming from. All right, so all of these things initiate um, tum'ah, impurity. The highest form of impurity is caused by contact with a human corpse. Right? A dead person is the highest level of tum'ah that happens. Birth is next. Um, menstruation, because it's so regular. What else causes tum'ah? What about for men? Male discharge. Discharge for males. Right? So discharge for male or female causes impurity. 
Then how do you have sex? You, you have sex and you become impure until evening. You do mikvah and are impure until evening. And then, aren't there also discharges of the skin? So there, there are... Not just sexual, that's right. but also so, discharges of the skin. So, so while well, we would say, you know, um, eruptions yeah. on the skin... Boils. Yes, yeah, certainly. The, uh, this whole Parsha, Tazria, is about what's been mistakenly called leprosy for thousands of years. Um, so, and the mitzorah is the person who has that condition, right? Tazria is the condition. The mitzorah is the one who has that. So, so in this system, it's very important to understand when one is impure. The priests really needed to know when somebody was impure because it's contaminating so if you bring it into the space, now you're going to spread it. So this is Leviticus. This is the book that the priests, this is what the priests need to be concerned with. It's their manual. So that's why it's here. So we're looking at their manual for knowing about all of this. All right. So what happens when one is a mitzorah? What happens when one is in this place of being able to communicate impurity? One must be separated from normal, regular life, right? You have to, you have to go outside the camp until such time as you can go through the rituals of reentry, right? So these are not permanent states. These are states that happen. How do you have sex, you asked, right? You're supposed to have sex. You're supposed to bury your kinspeople who die. So it's, that's how we know this cannot mean bad. It, it can't. You're supposed to give birth. You're going to menstruate, right? So it can't mean bad. So the folks who want to turn to menstruation always to say this is proof of misogyny, the, the trouble is for, for a seminal emission, it's the same impurity, right? It, for sex, it's the same. For intimacy, it's the same impurity that we're talking about. It's not just menstruation. So, so for them, it meant a time of otherness, a time of being outside of the camp until one goes through the rituals of purification and return. So, excuse me, so women had to do this every month? Yes. Even Orthodox really? today. And this is one of the right. This is one of yeah. the family. This is family purity laws that are still in place in the Orthodox world today. I was just say that. So they they do not have contact with their husbands or anyone else in the. Right, but the man won't touch the, any women. Period. Because because if he doesn't touch his wife, all of a sudden, what is he announcing to the world? Mm -hmm. So he never touches her, or any You don't touch any woman because you don't know, right? And it's not appropriate to be touching other women anyway. Right. Says traditional Judaism. You shouldn't be touching. Why are you touching any women? You shouldn't. It leads to dancing. Right? <laughs> and we don't want that. Wearing <laughs> tally at the wall. Right. It can lead to wearing tally toad at the wall. And so every time you have sex, you then have to have mikvah? Yeah. You go before. 
Huh? Wait, no, after menstruation you go. To the yes. So she's Which asking, every time there's that. intercourse, do you, does one have to go to the mikvah? In this system, yes. In this system, yes. Now, now, what, now, this is where it gets ironic about menstruation, is that's the one that has survived post-temple, not intercourse. Interesting. Or night emissions for men. We don't hear, we don't hear anything about that. But the menstruant, that is in full effect, right? So this is where some feminist scholars say, wait a minute, right? That's not... That, that, how, how does that happen? Mm-hmm. When actually the Torah text is more stringent about seminal emissions than menstruation. So then how is it that it's more strident in the Torah and yet it disappears as normative? At what point did most of this become non-operative? Since it didn't happen at the temple. Was the temple necessary for these purification? So... Presumably, yes, that sacrifice. But I mean, but going out of the, the idea of, of going out of the camp and being impure until evening and that kind of thing, did that die with the second temple or was that a gradual? So that, yeah, that ends when one no longer has a means by which to okay. purify. So all the purification had to take place at the temple. Correct. There was no other way. It, th- that the system collapses oh. with the destruction of the temple. Now, having said that, what stayed in place were those things which, according to Torah, went past the camp. I mean, or past the sancta, mm-hmm. the central Because there was some sanctified things where, space. where, like, that person shall be impure until evening. Right. Where you don't need the temple for that. Um, so, you know, so, the, yeah. so family purity laws, right. the Kohen... Staying in a state of ritual purity and not having contact with a corpse, those things have stayed in place. That's a Kohen doesn't go to a cemetery. Correct. So people who trace their roots to Kohanim, to priests, do not go to cemeteries. They do not go in the funeral parlor. There's a glass partition that they stand behind so that they are not in the room with the corpse. Rabbi, I'm having trouble uh, distinguishing between. inappropriate behavior, which you say is not sinful, and sinful behavior. Mm-hmm. Sinful behavior is bad. Yes. Okay, and inappropriate behavior is not. It's just different. So it's not inappropriate. It's not inappropriate to become ritually impure to bury your grandfather. That's not inappropriate. It's a mitzvah. Mm-hmm. We're commanded to bury our dead. Well, and when we do... One of the things that you talked about, you said, are, are other but not bad. Right. Like illness, somebody getting ill. Like what? Illness, right? So, so like intercourse. You're impure. That's not bad. You're other. Okay. Right? Because hopefully intimacy, sexual intimacy in particular between partners, is an otherizing experience, right? Birth. Birth, you are impure for weeks as a woman, but it's not bad. Ask a new mother about her state after giving birth. She'll tell you it's quite other. <laughs> yes, exactly. It is quite other. So I'm going to give you a piece that, that by Rabbi Rachel Rosenblatt that talks about that. Um, 
and one by Rabbi Tirza Firestone. So, um, so we're going to so we're going to start here, and then we're going to quickly move <laughs> um, into what the tradition has done with this concept going forward. All right. So, <clears throat> where are we? Fifteen one. We are. Yes. Fourteen fifty four. That's the red bark. So now I want you to imagine, as we read this, I want you to imagine that we are talking about E. coli. What? Chapter fifteen, verse one. Okay, right. Sixty six, six sixty six in the head. Six sixty five. Fifteen, verse one would be. <coughs> That's different, Carol. That's a different issue. All right, someone want to read? Adonai spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, when any man has a discharge issuing from his member, he is impure. The impurity from his discharge shall mean the following. Whether his member runs with the discharge or is stopped up so that there is no discharge, his impurity means this. Any bedding on which the one with the discharge lies shall be impure, and every object on which he sits shall be impure. All those who touch his bedding shall wash their clothes, bathe in water, and remain impure until evening. All those who sit on an object on which the one with the discharge has sat shall wash their clothes, bathe in water, and remain impure until evening. All those who touch the body of the one with the discharge shall wash their clothes, bathe in water, and remain impure until evening. If the one with the discharge spits on someone who is pure, the latter shall wash those clothes, bathe in water, and remain impure until evening. Any means for riding that the one with the discharge has mounted shall be impure. All those who touch anything that was under him shall be impure until evening, and all those who carry such things shall wash their clothes, bathe in water, and remain impure until evening. All those whom the one with the, dis- with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash their clothes, bathe in water, and remain impure until evening. An earthen vessel that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken, and any wooden implement shall be rinsed with water. Do you get a sense of the urgency mm-hmm. of this? Wow. Think about the AIDS epidemic. <clears throat> Kids who went to school who were HIV positive and other kids wouldn't touch the playground equipment that those kids had been on. That is what we're dealing with, right? An understanding of the power of something invisible, but there and very real, right? How do doctors deal with this? How do doctors deal with this? My bet is that they get it. They understand, right? Look at doctors that walk around like this and and open doors with their elbows. They understand the incredible need to stay pure of the invisible contaminants that mean death in life or 
seriously compromised life, right? You get really, really sick. They, they get this. Now, of course, they would scoff and laugh, many of them, at the idea that there's a spiritual force that does this or that you, normal physical processes cause that, of course. But, but I think we get the power of, un, if you understand this to be a real force, then the vigilance, you can see the vigilance. Now, the other thing I want to point out is when we started here, um, partly on purpose, because look at the contamination factor, and it's men. I really want to point that out. This whole system is often called misogynistic. I'm not going to argue about it. I'm just going to point out that it's just as vigorously, right, um, stringent about men contaminating something they sit on, right? Or spitting on somebody, right? They, they communicate just as much ritual impurity as a woman in her condition. So a note, a note here in the Hertz says that this is talking about dischargers that are a result of illness or infection. That not is the assumption here. Yes. Right. Yes. It is not. That's subtle. right. That's why the word is is not emission. It is. Okay. That it's a dis. Okay. So here you're talking about what we would consider to be someone who. Is, is dealing with... The illness that yes. you can see. Right, because we're just coming out of the discussion of right. Sarat, you know, what's been called leprosy. You know, so we're, we're talking about all kinds of conditions that... And it has the same here. Hmm? It's talking about gonorrhea. Or right. right, right, exactly. And he's actually some pretty sensible, I mean, from a medical standpoint, this is pretty sensible. Yeah. Right? They, Wash they, your they, hands. They must have had a sense that there was... Something wrong. That could be communicated. And in some cases, they would not have been wrong. This is not an ejaculate? This is no. A, Correct. This is, no. That's later. Okay. Right? That's, that's 16. That's verse 16. But let's look at the purification ritual, 13. <laughs> when one with a discharge becomes purified of his discharge, he shall count off seven days for his purification, wash his clothes, and bathe his body in fresh water. Every day? Uh, no, oh, at, on the, uh, on the after day. seven days. Oh, okay. Then he shall be pure. On the eighth day, okay. he shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and come before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. The priest shall offer them. The one is a purification offering and the other is a burnt offering. Thus, the priest shall make expiation on his behalf for his discharge before the Lord. All right, so, that, so after seven days... Right? There's mikvah mm -hmm. and an offering of two birds and one is pure again. And one comes back into the camp. This is the same thing for the menstruant. Right? Seven days mm -hmm. and on the eighth day. Right? Now the difference, of course, is that she's going to have it regularly. Um, but what's interesting is if you... St I, I studied anthropology as an undergraduate at Northwestern cultural anthropology, so it was about people's rites and rituals and tribal, you know, um, beliefs and experiences. And, and the red tent, <clears throat> so we talked a lot about um, women in, in aboriginal cultures, in primitive cultures, who, um, who had still this practice of being taboo when they are menstruating. Um, in Africa, they are, they live together in a in a dwelling that is for the menstruants, and you can't, the sons or whoever's bringing them food 
can't even touch, they, they can't hand the plate to the woman. They have to put the plate on the ground and scoot it towards her, and then she picks it up. Because it will communicate to Ma, right? So, so the, the idea that they are taboo. So there is varying degrees of this in different um, cultures and that, that still have this, or that have had this understanding of taboo, of, of other. And it's interesting that in the anthropological record, there were complaints that women were having uh, their menstrual cycle several times in a month. <laughs> So we we come with our preconceived ideas about oh that's horrible, no. right? Nice. But for for some cultures, women were more than happy it seems to have a timeout away from their husbands and children and household duties, yeah. where they hung out with other women Precursive for a week to the spa vacation. <laughs> See, how it sounds good. It's a good. Thing. A weekend retreat. A weekend retreat. Margot, wouldn't that be a great idea? A weekend retreat? Let's go. But only once a year? Yeah. Right. So, um, so I just want to remind us that we, you know, we come with our ideas, but, but there, there is in the record an experience of, of the red tent, if you want to call it that, that's, that's different, right? That, that's empowering. That's... So what do the rabbis make of all that? Bert's so ready to go there. He's so ready to go there. So, um, so this this goes on. You can read it at home, uh, and, and it goes on and on and on um, about the different conditions that bless you um, that cause sara'at, as well as uh, what the rituals are for um, recovery from it. Um, so the rabbis understand the um, immense power. Of, of tumah, right? You know, of this, of this impurity. Of course, without the Levitical system, without the the temple, it, it stops being a normative part of Israelite life early on. But it's so here, it's so powerful that the rabbis want to understand what might be going on in a way that they can bring it forward. So for the rabbis. They look at this word, mitzorah, and Hebrew is the Lashon HaKodesh, it's the holy language, and it's a deep language, it's a language of depth. I always say it's a language of depth, not breadth. <laughs> and so they look at this word, mitzorah, my printing's terrible, forgive me. Is it a hay or an olive? Um, so they look at this word, it's an ayin. Um, they look at this uh, word, I can't spell in English, so um, it shouldn't surprise you. Um, so they look at this and they think, huh, so what's really going on here? If this is the holy tongue, then there's got to be, this is the language through which the world is created. There has to be something else going on here. This can't just have ended with the temple, God forbid. There has to be something else here. So what do they do? Reuben, you got any hints? What does who do? So what do the rabbis do with this? The mitzorah, the one who has this condition. It's got to mean more than just someone who has leprosy or someone who is impure because it's, there's so much in Torah about it. It's got to go past the temple. It has to. 
Well, it could be Sarah, uh, trouble. Ha! Mm -hmm. Sarah! Okay. They go like this. They break the word in half. Right? Mitzvah. Motzi. Motzi. Ra. Motzi. Ra. The one who brings forth evil. And what, for the rabbis, is the way that we most normally bring forth evil? Lashon hara. Lashon hara. There's got to be, got to be a relationship. We got Ra. Well, we know something about Ra, say the rabbis. Right? We know about Ra. The most common word is Lashon hara. Evil speech. The evil tongue. And this is the cause of most destruction in our own communities, in our own times. This is the number one killer in our time of the spirit and of community and of relationships is gossip. So for them, they carry all of this forward in a way that really talks about the disease of the mouth, the disease of the tongue. And they, they spent a very long time in the rabbinic literature talking about, talking, right? Talking about what constitutes gossip. So, you know, for the rabbis, it's not just that I speak ill of someone, right? It's that you listen. If you listen, you have participated in Lashon Hara. So, and according to the rabbis, I who initiated have now sinned against you by drawing you into it. And you're an accessory. Because I've made someone an accessory. I've sinned against the person I'm talking about, and I've sinned against the creator. So every time we open our mouths, say the rabbis, let us pay serious attention to whether or not we're going to wrong three people or three entities. And it doesn't matter if what you're saying is true. It does not matter if what you're saying is true. Wow. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad. Frankly, it doesn't matter if it's good or bad, say the rabbis. So you can't talk about anybody, period. You shouldn't be talking about anybody, period. You ever give a so what are you talking about? Mm. You can give a compliment to someone's face, <laughs> but not behind their back. Because the minute I say that, Linda Scheibel... She is something. <laughs> she is unbelievable how much she does for this community. What do I open up? Criticism. What do I open up? Is someone to say, well, you know why she does that. You know, right? So... Says <laughs> so she drinking from that Says <laughs> so she drinking from that cup of harlotry. Yes? But I want to tell you something funny. I'm, I'm sorry I was late and all that, but this particular Torah portion was the one that I had when I was 13 years old and had my five mitzvah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Lovely. And, I mean, there are lots of different issues in this Torah portion. Nobody would talk to me about them. Huh. All I basically learned, other than if I did any digging myself, and as a 13-year-old, I didn't really, was talking about leprosy. <laughs> but none of any of this, none about the, the birth issues, none, you know, 
until two, three years ago when I was toward study, we started talking about it. I said, how come nobody would talk to me about it? Um, of course, they, yeah. were, they were all men, right? Right. So part of it is that in our Western contemporary thinking, this is embarrassing. This is embarrassing. That, that this whole idea of tuma and impurity and from sexuality and blood and men. First of all, no one wants to go there anyway. No one wants to talk about that, particularly with a 13-year-old. I don't talk about this a lot with 13-year-olds either. Um, but what you're talking about here and now is certainly worthy of speaking about to a 13-year-old. Because that's the age where they start, if not younger, bullying and everything else. I mean, that's right. relevant. So in terms of speech, yeah. right, understanding Lashon Hara. I once got off the internet, and I forget who wrote it, something about 10, uh, there were rules for kids about how to avoid Lashon Hara. And I was with some of my grandkids, and I, you know, I said, gee, let me tell you about this. And we went through the whole thing, and they looked at it, and they said, well, if kids followed this, nobody would talk about anything at school. <laughs> because so much of what kids talk about. And it does. I mean, I'm sure it was like that before. No, but I mean, particular kids, it's all about somebody else. They're talking about other people. Right? Um, Rabbi Laura Geller also had this for her 13-year-old bat mitzvah. And she has a column in the Jewish Journal about it. This, oh, this week? This week? This week? Yeah. Okay. And you find it interesting. Yes, Blanche. I have a, had a friend who decided she was a gossip, and she decided to prevent that. She will not talk about anybody that's not in the room. An excellent practice. It's an excellent practice. Yes. Because, and if we go on just a speech diet, like, you know, when you start any kind of a diet, and not just for weight loss, but because you're going to try to, like me, you know, try to deal with gluten or whatever. So when you start, you start being vigilant about reading labels, and you start to become very vigilant about noticing and keeping track of what you eat, right? So if we go on a speech diet, if we were that vigorous and that vigilant about watching everything that came out of our mouths, it is staggering. Staggering the percentage of speech about other people. If we just said we're not going to talk about anybody who wasn't in the room, nine times out of ten during the day, you'd have to start, right. We'd have to stop talk, stop what we were about to say. But it might be a good thing. They might be. Might the rabbis ask, so why are you talking about it? Maybe it's a good thing I'm talking about Linda Scheibel. But why am I talking about Linda Scheibel? Why am I talking to Chaim about her? <laughs> what if you want to help another person and need the help of somebody to talk with them about it? Well, so certainly, if it's about helping somebody, certainly. But you'd have to be careful, right? So I would have to be careful about what I say. I don't know what somebody knows about that person's condition, nor do I know what that person with whatever's going on, how much they want other people to know, right? So it, it's tricky. I would need to go to the person and say, how much of this is public? No, I mean, I, this happens all the time for us as clergy. We want to help. 
but we don't know how much you have to check with the person to know how much they want known even when you're trying to be helpful Sarah, it's okay to talk about the grandchildren. <laughs> I believe there is one important, correct me if I'm wrong, there's an important exception, and that is if you have information about somebody that will protect the third party. So if I were talking to person A who said A was going to do a business deal with B, and I knew for sure that B was a crook for some reason, then I would be able to... But I actually have an good. obligation to warn good. A about it. Right, so you that would be the only thing. You better be sure they're a crook. Right, right. In, uh, in my work at the hospital, we have to honor patients' confidentiality. Because all of a sudden, someone starts a rumor, he's got such and such, and all of a sudden, the person's halfway dead when they just went out to get a sliver taken out. Right, yep. I'm going to read to you from Rabbi Rachel Berenblatt, also known as the Velveteen Rabbi. And you can find her stuff online. She's fantastic. Fantastic. Um, her Passover Haggadah is beautiful. Beautiful. Um, so she talks about um, having studied this, you know, um, Parsha for a long time. And then she gave birth to a child. When I read the Torah verses here about how a woman is Tameh for 33 or for 66 days after birth, I think of spending my first two months of motherhood swimming against the current of postpartum depression, a different kind of Tum'ah, which nonetheless separated me from my community. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that that's what the Torah verses are about per se, and I know that every woman's experience is different, but I suspect that many women experience the first one or two months of motherhood as a different time an overwhelming time, a time which is set apart from ordinary life. Labor and birth were a one-time thing for me, but I'm blessed now to be able to minister to people through the journey of sickness and death and burial. And I know that every time I touch death in these ways, I come away feeling changed, changed and charged, electrified almost, as though I had shed everything extraneous in myself and my life in order to go somewhere very deep. I think that deep place is the same place I touched when I closed my eyes and Drew was born. And I know that every time I go there, it takes a little while for the experience to wear off, as it were. When I emerge back into ordinary life, when the spiritual tingliness wears off, I'm often exhausted, but deeply grateful to have touched those depths. That's how I understand Tum'ah now. Tum'ah is the stuff of blood and birth and death and ineffability. Most of us don't live our lives in constant awareness of our blood and our mortality and our deep mystical connection with something beyond, something from which we emerge when we are born and to which we return when we die. But birth and death, blood and semen and mysterious bodily separations are part of this human life. Leviticus offers us one very old framework for understanding these things and how they impact us. So if we carry her observation forward, let's look at Tirza Firestone, Rabbi Tirza Firestone. And remember what we did up here 
somebody want to read from Rabbi Firestone? It's coming. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. No worries. The Mitzora question, dying and flying, by Tirsa Firestone. Every year we have to look at this issue of what is Mitzora. It's so much nicer to read other parshiot, but Mitzora is such a conundrum every year. What is this thing, Mitzora? Is it psoriasis, leprosy, the disease du jour, AIDS, breast cancer? What do we do with it? Is it slanderous tongue? So many different interpretations of this word. So why is this Reb Zalman's chilek portion? So she's, she's writing a talk. She's giving a shiur. She's giving a uh, lesson in honor of her teacher, um, the amazing Reb Zalman. And the parsha for the week, when which she's giving this shiur in his honor, um, is Tazriya Matara. So she's going to try to make a connection about why. So why on Reb Zalman's you know, Shabbat davka is this the chilek? Is this the portion? Go ahead. One way to look at Mitzorah is to see it as a shortened form of two words, matzah ra. Sometimes in the place of what should be sustenance, we found ra. Good. So that's what we do up here, right? We can either say the one who brings forth ra or matzah, found evil. The one who finds ra. So this is how she's, she's going to play with that. The one who finds, but she's not going to say evil. She's going to say negativity. All right, go ahead. When we looked into the depth of our birthright and lineage, we found stagnancy instead of running water. We found isolation and separation, not the big view. Matsinu, we found ra, negativity. We are all the Mitzvah at one time or another. And so what happens? We have to go literally out of the machana. machana, out of the mainstream. There we are followed by the Kohen, who, for so many of us, is Reb Zalman, our beloved shaman, priest, teacher, friend. He helped us to come from the tight, myopic, clustered vision into a broad expanse, to help us find the windows and the doors in Yiddishkeit through which we could come back in, and expand our consciousness. When we read in this chilek, really is about that healer and a healing that has happened to so many of us. All right, she's now going to do a lovely interpretation of the um, ritual for um, a woman coming with two birds. One is one is killed. One is dipped into the blood. The wing is dipped into the blood of the one that was killed, and it is set free. One sacrificed one the other bird is dipped in the its wing is dipped in the blood of the one that was sacrificed and is set free go ahead these are our shamanic rituals and the one that we have and the one that we have for coming back into camp to bring our riches back into the mahatma has to do with two birds a cedar branch crimson wool and hyssop along the run with the running water birds are a symbol of the soaring human spirit the spirit that's alive within us Notice that we take two. One is saved and one is killed. Why is that? The one that's killed has to do with that part of our spirit which has to be exchanged, sacrificed, so that we can fly free. In order to soar, in order to really have... Mochin de Godlut. Godlut, expanded consciousness, some part of us must be sacrificed. Each one of us knows this in our personal lives. 
and we certainly know it as a people, as a nation. On the way to being here now, renewing Judaism, we have suffered an incredible loss. One of our birds, the twin bird, has died, and on its wings come us. And having survived this loss, we know that we are never going to be the same. When we have come to consciousness, we know that we are inalterably changed by the sacrifice. Our twin soul, perhaps the innocence in us, or the people that we had to leave in order to be where we are now, is gone. We are marked. And so the Torah tells us in its deep wisdom that our wings are dipped in the blood of our twin soul. That blood is on our wings as we soar. But we do soar and we're lifted off into the <coughs> fields to fly free. <coughs> A really profound mm -hmm. interpretation for me. Of what is her background? Jewish? I mean, I she's a, a rabbi. She's a very, you know, she's a very interesting autobiography that she wrote. Um, I will lend it to you if you would like to mm -hmm. read it. But um, it, it is a very, very interesting background, a traditional background, and a break. But she mentions Yiddish guy. She comes from a very traditional background. Yeah, that's interesting. You can pick it up. Um, right? And, and a very painful journey to, to where she is now. Very painful. Is she married to Reuben Firestone? I think so. Uh, no. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Different. Different. Um, but for me, um, what's profound about this are many things um, in my own life. Just the, the, the part that has to be sacrificed. To move on, to fly. So much pain associated with that. And we're marked. We fly and we're marked. We are dipped in the blood of what has to be sacrificed, what has to be left in order to fly. Um, it's a profound teaching on honoring and moving out of that, you know, like it, that we honor it, we carry it with us, but we've got to move, we've got to go. You know, isn't this, a, wouldn't this be an interesting lesson for a 13 year old to, mm -hmm. to honor? Uh, or at least on some level? Mm -hmm. Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> um, possibly. Uh, but, and we're going to do a lot more with it tomorrow morning. So you're now our resident expert on the women's <laughs> retreat, Margo. <laughs> Um, on this parsha, because we're gonna we're gonna do something. <laughs> no, I won't. We're gonna do something with that tomorrow morning in a ritual that's gonna be. What was the name of the other rabbi that you read from? Rabbi Rachel Berenblatt, and she her webs her blog and all of that is called the Velveteen Rabbi. Why? Did you say Velveteen? Do you know the story of the Velveteen Rabbit? Yeah. So when can I run and play with the real rabbis? So when she was a rabbinical student, she had this blog called The Velveteen Rabbi, when will I be able to run and play with the real rabbis? And now she's a real rabbi. Um, but she became very widely known as The Velveteen Rabbi because she, her stuff is so amazing. Um, Sarah, would you do us the favor of reading Mitzorah by, by Ruth, the poet Ruth Brin? Turn your paper over. Delight. <laughs> Leviticus 14.15 Long after the temple was destroyed and the sages had substituted prayer for sacrifice, the people remembered the rites of purification. 
The mothers in the ghetto would wave the holiday bird over the heads of their children to atone for sin and evil. We read and we remember and we wonder, how shall we rise above the circumstances of our lives as the living bird rose over the open field? How shall we find words for prayer as pure as the trill of the wild bird singing? Nature demands of the bird flight and song, and how beautifully he sings in the branches, how swiftly he flies the summer skies. O Lord our God, may we do our tasks as well, whether we are required to achieve or to pray, to study or to sacrifice. As we delight in the swoop and glide, an ascending arc of the flight of birds, so may you find delight in us when we strive for our own human achievement. Wow. Yes, gorgeous. Who wrote this? She um, is a Minnesota native uh, and lived in Minneapolis. Uh, and her name was Ruth Bryn, of blessed memory. She died a few years ago. Um, so she wrote, a, she wrote a lot of poetry, but I, her last collection was published by an independent publisher who was a member of my synagogue in Duluth um, called Harvest, because it was published at the end of her life. I will happily give you a copy. Um, and, uh, and so this is a collection of her. She has a, a poem on each Parsha. Um, so for years in Duluth, we went. What an undertaking! Right. So we we would use her poem of the parsha in our morning davening every Shabbos as part of Psuche de Zimra, as part of our verses of praise. I think we we might all want more of this. So I will be happy to, to share it with you. Hmm? It's a wonderful book. It is a wonderful book. I know her. Couple miles Right. Yeah. Right? And she's in our Sidur, actually. Yeah. There's a piece of hers in our... It's about Genesis. Hail the hand that scattered space with stars. Oh. That's hers. That's hers. Oh, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. 